You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. It's good to see you all. And uh, of course, as uh, some other people are rolling in, um, wanted to remind you that uh, we'll be taking communion later in the service. So if you needed to grab some elements, whatever you have around the house, uh, go ahead and do that. And we'll share in communion a little bit later in the service. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a really interesting week. Uh, I didn't know until this morning, actually, that there has been an oil spill off the coast of Southern California here that's becoming uh, a crisis for us. And it's just, gosh, just one thing after another on top of what has been a um, really crazy and catastrophic year in so many ways. So wherever you're coming from, whatever is going on for you in relationships, in the middle of this kind of separation we've been doing from everybody, um, whatever is going on personally for you, thank you so much for being here. I just want you to know that um, I'm so appreciative of each of you being a part of this community. And this has been so tremendously life-giving over the last year and a half. So um, until we can meet consistently in person, I'm really excited about the opportunities to see you all outdoors where it's safer. And, um, and just again, thanks for being central here with us. Um, this morning, I wanted to open our service with a prayer uh, that was written by Father Thomas Keating. Um, if you're not familiar, he is—he uh, was a um, a Catholic priest and a Trappist monk, uh, which is my personal favorite because they brew such outstanding beer. Um, but he was somebody who was uh, extremely contemplative and was really influential in. Um, the kind of ideas of contemplative prayer, which have become um, much more widespread in Christianity that all come mostly out of the Catholic tradition. Um, So anyways, this is, it's called the welcoming prayer. And I adapted it just a bit um, for us here at Central this morning. Um, Let's join in prayer together. And as I pray this, this is written in the first person. Um, But as you hear these words, um, make them your own in your prayer as well. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I welcome everything that comes to me today because I know it's for my healing. I welcome all thoughts, feelings, emotions, persons, situations, conditions. I let go of my desire for power and control. I let go of my desire for affection, esteem, approval, and pleasure. I let go of my desire for permanence and security. I let go of my desire to change any relationship, person, or myself. I open to the love and presence of God 
and God's action within me. God of dreams and visions, this morning you unleash the imaginations of our heart. In you, we catch sight of the possibilities for thinking and living differently. Make us open to the wisdom of the past and to your promise of the future that today we might be transformed by the mystery of your love. Amen. And this morning, I'm going to share my screen with you for um, a liturgy that's partially responsive. Um, and uh, this actually comes from uh, the Episcopal tradition, and it's taken several parts from our uh, friends at All Saints Episcopal Church, um, right close by in Pasadena. Um, but this is a, a collect for purity and um, a prayer of confession. And I've, uh, I've tried to incorporate and include liturgies and ideas from different traditions because um, it's central not being a part of a denomination ourself. Um, there's an aspect that I think we miss of being a part of a larger body of faith. And so as we do this, it's kind of a way also to recognize our connection within the larger church in general, um, which I think is really important and really meaningful, especially in a time where we've been so separated um, for so long. Um, so you'll hear this is language that is uh, a little bit different sometimes than the language we typically use, but I think fits really well with who we are at Central. And um, as always with these kinds of liturgies, not every aspect of these prayers are going to apply to you personally. And that's great um, because if they don't, as we pray them together and we pray them on behalf of others, uh, if there's things that are hard for us to pray, others pray them on behalf of us. Um, and so uh, let's join together uh, in this prayer. Almighty God, to you, all hearts are open, all desires known and from you no secrets are hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your love in this world through Christ our Lord. God dwells in you. And also in you. Let us pray. Compassionate one, teach us to practice discernment to know when love calls for gentleness or for challenge, when to push and when to be still within and in the world. God of hope, you have not left us powerless before pain, not ours, not our neighbors, not that of the groaning earth. With your help, we need not be afraid to confront and be confronted by the truth of what is, what has been, and what may become. May we be devoted to faithful practice of care whenever they are needed most for ourselves and for others.
God of abundance, you anoint us with the oil of gladness. May we be aware of the quickening of possibility. May we continuously draw sustenance from a well of living water and flowing streams. And now together, let us confess our sins before God. And here we pray together. O oh God, you have searched us out and all that we are is open to you. We confess that we have sinned. We have used our power to manipulate. We have evaded responsibility and failed to confront evil. We have denied dignity to ourselves and to our siblings and fallen into despair. We turn to you, O God. We renounce evil. We claim your love. Choose to be Almighty God, have mercy on us. Forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness and keep us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for that, Bob. Um, we'll be reading a short reflection as we prepare for communion. Uh, it's from a little uh, a series called Moments for Common Nourishment uh, by Reverend Anna Bladell, who uh, we've used uh, a number of times in, in our service. They are um, a reverend um, that writes liturgy and, and poems and reflections and prayers, um, and they're always just so beautiful. Um, but this is a reflection, <clears throat> um, so a little bit of a different uh, pace for, for our usual communion, but if you have not grabbed anything yet, please feel free to do so um, for the elements that you will use as the bread and the cup, um, whatever it is you might have around you today. And with that, uh, hear these words. We'll use this as a reflection. On September 10th, 1935, lesbian poet Mary Oliver was born. Exactly one year later, my friend Larry Sonner entered the world. On September 10th, 2019, my precious nephew Oliver took his first breath. A poet I never met, now dead, whose tender wisdom breaks open my heart and connects me with life, who teaches that both poetry and the beauty of the world can save us. A tender man whose deep friendship forever changed my life, who died last year from COVID and whose gentle voice still finds me when I'm sitting quietly on my porch, listening to birdsong, sipping coffee. A fierce and fantastic toddler whose laughter opens new worlds, who bursts forth in wondrous delight at trees and dirt and pear juice dripping down his chin. Mary wrote, pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. Larry tacked these words above his desk, 
Oliver does not know, but knows and lives them. Joanna Macy calls this deep time work, the holy labor of reconnecting with ancestors and future beings to guide and inspire and orient and enliven us. Two years ago, when my sister went into labor, I drove to their town to be with my two nieces to care and tend and wait to welcome this life. My younger niece, then a few months shy of four, was and is an empath. She feels deeply. She knows deeply. She's intuitive and caring and deeply connected to the complex currents within and around her. Nora could feel how unsteady, uncertain, in flux her world was. Every rhythm and routine disrupted, a portal opening, life never to be the same again. For days surrounding Oliver's birth, Nora would cycle through a call and response litany. Mama okay, she'd ask, staring into my eyes. Mama's okay, sweetheart. Arlo okay? Using the name they'd been calling that becoming life in utero. Arlo's okay. He's so lucky to have you as a big sister. Daddy okay? Daddy's okay. He's with Mama and Arlo. Annie okay? Using the name given me by my first niece when she started to talk. Annie's okay. I'm so glad to be with you. And then my turn. Nora okay? She'd nod eyes wide with bravery and fear, sometimes shimmering excitement, sometimes glistening with tears. Then seconds or minutes or hours later, the litany would begin again. Lately, I've been thinking about Nora and finding myself wanting to cycle through this litany. Everything is unsteady, uncertain, in flux. So much is not okay on so many scales. So much is crumbling in rupture. It seems everyone I know, even those most skilled and practiced in grounding, adapting, moving with wisdom and cultivating resilience are exhausted and grieving and unmoored and putting a lot into being okay enough. During these days that hold so much heaviness and holiness too, Rabbi Julia Watts Belser has been asking, how do we stay alive to the sweetness of the world while staying present to the heartache? By holding beauty gently without pushing aside grief, she, she suggests life is restored through this both and. Poet Andrea Gibson offers this poem, which I find myself sharing with a lot of people I love. A difficult life is not less worth living than a gentle one. Joy is simply easier to carry than sorrow, and your heart could lift a city from how long you've spent holding what's been nearly impossible to hold. This world needs those who know how to do that, those who could find a tunnel that has no light at the end of it and hold it up like a telescope to know the darkness also contains truths that could bring the light to its knees. Grief astronomer, adjust the lens, look close, tell us what you see. All week, share this with you guys. <clears throat> All week, I've been returning to this Hubble telescope image of the pillars of creation. And there's a link to it in the chat if you wanna take a look. The pillars are six light years across. It would take light six years to travel across them. It takes light eight minutes to get from the sun to the earth. The scale of possibility is beyond my comprehension. 
quote, scale matters in the universe. And while on small scales, things are collapsing, on large scales, they are expanding, writes Shonda Prescott-Weinstein, black feminist cosmologist, particle physicist, and professor of astronomy. The Pillars of Creation is a stellar nursery where stars are born. I remember many years ago learning that when we look into the night sky, we are looking into the past. I had also learned wrongly that the stars we can see from Earth are dead. The Milky Way has something like 200 billion stars in it, most of them burning right now, alive. Billions of stars in this galaxy alone, not merely a thing of the past, but emerging still now. Grief astronomer, adjust the lens, look close, tell us what you see. Nothing okay but our hearts aching from sweetness as well as sorrow. Nothing okay but beauty held gently alongside grief. Nothing okay but traditions of paying attention, being astonished by and telling about beauty, tenderness, generosity, possibility passed down and around, put into practice, returned to and recreated through deep time work. Nothing is okay but stars are still being born. That reading is called, Nothing is Okay But Stars Are Still Being Born. <clears throat> and I invite us to meditate and take a moment as we gather our bread, our Cheez-Its as it were, and our cup to reflect and name that while nothing is okay these days, um, there are still stars being born around us, among us, in us, um, and through us. And we take part in that ongoing creation together. With that, I invite you to take the elements. And then today, I think we have announcements from Daniel. Is that right, Dan? Yeah, I was I was tasked with some announcements this morning. Fortunately, we just have a couple, so if I mess it up, it'll be it'll be short, and relatively painless. So. But uh, yeah, two things two things coming up uh, this week. We've got writer's block on Tuesday, the twelfth at seven p.m. This same Zoom link, if you want to join for that. And then on Friday the 15th, uh, we're going to have Holy Happy Hour going on, uh, 8.30 p.m. at We're Pouring in Glendale. I've been to that a couple times. If you haven't been to We're Pouring, it's a pretty cool place, pretty relaxed. Um, just Lots out. of outdoor, yeah, lots of outdoor seating. Right, yeah, yeah, they do have that, which is, which is helpful, safe. So. And that's, uh, that's it. All right, thank you, Dan. So uh, prayer requests, words of thanksgiving. Um, now is the time that we bring these things up before our friends and family here. And uh, if you'd like, you can unmute and raise your voice that way. Otherwise, you can always put it in the chat column and I'll do my best to see it from there. Does anybody have something they want to share today?
Well, I just want to lead us in a general prayer for uh, the cares and concerns on our hearts that maybe we're not comfortable bringing forward, but are still there. Let's pray. Loving God, we lift up these concerns, these worries, these problems, and we pray for strength where strength is needed, hope where hope is needed, healing where healing is needed. Be with us and our loved ones in the hour of our need. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, Max, I'm going to hand that back to you. Thanks, Aaron. Um, we'll do uh, today a little music video um, by uh, a song by Corey Kilgannon, and you might be familiar with him. Uh, and he is one of those artists that uh, really wrestles with the ups and the downs and the deconstruction and the reconstruction. So I know um, would resonate uh, with many in our community, but uh, it's a song called Heaven. <clears throat> Share screen. I know how to do this, talking to myself. Right. Thanks for having me. And Caroline, the redheaded Kingsbury Indian is up next. I'm wicked and 
I've loved the dark, I doubted in my heart That God would die so I could live a life indifferent Heaven is more like soft wind A gentle waking breath for tired souls Heaven is full of children who innocently love what they can't know If Jesus and all his armies will come with fire and in their eyes then Jesus I'm so sorry for the way I've lived my life he said son be still and welcome home I've loved you even so go i'll uh drop the link uh in the chat if you want to follow up on that thanks max um diana sorry i didn't see your hand from a minute ago did you have a, a prayer request oh that's okay i just i didn't want to jump in too fast and then it was over so quick <laughs> oh no hey listen you know this is pretty chill so it's totally it's totally fine <laughs> Um, I just, I just wanted to have like just a, a more formal prayer for my friend, for Valerie's, mostly for Valerie's husband, Josh, yeah. um, because he's just, I mean, as one can imagine, really struggling. Um, and for her sister, Heather and her dad, Steve, um, as they, you know, go back into their lives that are now so incredibly different. So, yeah, absolutely. Let's pray. Loving God, we lift up this family that's grieving, um, Josh, Steve, and Heather, um, all those involved. We pray for their wellness, um, their wholeness, their, their well-being. Uh, may they receive the support and the love they need from their, from their network of family and friends. But be also with Diana as she's going through this as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, we're going to be talking about the passion narrative, uh, which, of course, is the story of the last 24 hours of Jesus's life from the Last Supper to his death and burial the next day. And I want to suggest that the passion narrative, <clears throat> at least in the two earliest Gospels, and for those of you who don't know, Mark and Matthew uh, are the two earliest Gospels. Mark is, Mark is actually the oldest, and uh, Matthew and Luke uh, pull heavily from Mark. Um, that's called Mark in Priority for you for you Bible nerds out there. Uh, these are also called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke as their synopsis of each other. So I guess you could put it like that. They're they're kind of retellings of each other. But Mark was the original and and the source of a lot of what we find in Matthew and Luke. Um, and I want to suggest say that the passion narrative that we find specifically 
specifically in Mark and Matthew, can be read as liturgy and, and actually perhaps functioned as liturgy for the early church. Now, what is liturgy? That's kind of a very, a very churchy word, and we shouldn't assume everybody knows what that means. Liturgy basically means the customary sacred practices of a religious community, like hymns or prayers or readings that are ritually practiced when a faith community gathers. For example, our liturgy here every Sunday includes a time of prayer, music, there's a, a, a talk or a sermon, there's communion, right? We do the Lord's Supper and there's special readings. Even the dialogue portion of our service, which is to follow, can be, can be deemed liturgy. So that's basically what liturgy means. And there's, there's good reason to think that the passion narrative, especially from the earliest two gospels, Matthew and Mark, functioned as liturgy for the early church. One of the most compelling reasons for this is how the narrative is broken up into eight three-hour segments totaling, of course, 24 hours. Eight times three is 24. I had never heard this prior to about a week ago when I started diving into the work of the late Bishop uh, John Spong, who spoke about this, and I decided, hey, this is a great thing to share. So again, the passion narrative and, and Matthew Mark can be broken up into these eight three-hour segments totaling 24 hours. It begins with the Last Supper, and we're told that it was held when evening came or sundown, which according to to Matthew was 6 p.m. Tradition holds that the meal lasted until 9 p.m. when Jesus and his disciples left the upper room and went out uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. There they remained for three hours, and Jesus prayed, right, three times, Father, if thou wills it, let this cup pass from me, meaning the cross. At midnight, at the darkest time of night, Judas comes and betrays Jesus, and hands him over to the chief priests and their guards. Jesus then stands trial before the religious authorities from 12 a.m. to 3 a.m. Between 3 and 6, Peter himself goes through a time of trial and denies knowing Jesus three times, right? And then the rooster crows, thus signifying dawn, which meant it was 6 a.m. At that point, Jesus is, is sent to Pontius Pilate to stand trial for treason. He is convicted, and at 9 a.m., we're told that he is crucified. Both Matthew and Mark say at 9 a.m., he's crucified. At noon, we're told, to, um, we're told that darkness fell over the whole earth and lasted for three hours. And at 3 p.m., Jesus dies. It's then that Joseph of Arimathea, a, a wealthy follower of Jesus, came and got permission to take his body and bury it in one of his tombs, which he did before sundown, because you couldn't bury anyone after sundown on Friday because sundown marked the beginning of the Sabbath. So Jesus was buried by 6 p.m., marking the end of the Passion narrative and the end of, the, of this eight-segment, uh, <laughs> this, this sequence of, of three-hour-long eight segments of the Passion narrative. Uh, and I think the reason why the passion narrative in Matthew and Mark's gospel is, is arranged this way is, is obvious. It's easier to memorize and teach that way. It's, it's liturgical. The goal is not to impart an exact historical retelling of Jesus's death. That's not the goal. But the goal is rather to convey its meaning and help people remember its meaning. Remember, this is a time in history 
before most people were literate. Most people back then couldn't read. Structuring Jesus's story this way was an easy way to teach his story and memorize it and convey its meaning. But let's be clear, that meant that people probably um, did not think this story was completely historical. It was more liturgical than literal. It's not literal, it's liturgical, in my opinion. And, and one of the other liturgical elements of that indicate that indicate this are Jesus's words from the cross that Matthew and Mark record, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words do not originate with Jesus, but actually come from the Psalms, Psalm 22 to be exact, which begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning, end quote. By the way, the Psalms are hymns. They're, they're Jewish hymns, which means they're actually part of the Jewish liturgy. It's, it's my opinion, and you don't have to agree with me. It's my, my opinion that these words were placed into the mouth of Jesus by Matthew and Mark to add to the liturgical nature of the Passion narrative and to give Jesus' story authority by locating him within their scriptures. And actually, Psalm 22 goes on to say other things that bear striking uh, resemblance to other events in the Passion narrative. In verse 18 of Psalm 22, it says, They divide my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. Both Matthew and Mark say that upon his crucifixion, Jesus was stripped naked, and the soldiers cast, casted lots or dice for his clothing and divided his garments among themselves. In verse 7 of Psalm 22, it also says, all who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me. They shake their heads. Both Matthew and Mark say that those passing by looked upon Jesus and shook their heads and mocked him in various ways. There's other similarities between Psalm 22 and the Passion narrative, but you get the point. Now, the conservative reading says that Psalm 22 was a prophecy about Jesus, which Jesus fulfilled in order to prove that he was the son of God. And it's fine to believe that. That's cool. My, my goal isn't to tell you what to think about such matters, but to tell you what I think, tell you what others think, and let you make up your own mind. And my hope is that regardless of how we read Psalm 22 and its relationship to the passion narratives, um, my hope is that we'll agree that the underlying point is to tell us who Jesus was, what he stood for, and what his death meant to the meant in the eyes of his of his earliest followers. And in order to really do that, we must understand that Psalm 22 is based on this figure within the ancient Jewish tradition called the suffering servant of the Lord, which is kind of this this legendary or, or mythological hero. One cannot understand Psalm 22 or the Passion narrative for that matter without understanding how both of them play on this suffering servant trope, which developed some 500 years before Christ during what's called the Babylonian exile or immediately thereafter. For those unfamiliar with Hebrew history, around the year 600 BCE, the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem and enslaved and deported much of its inhabitants to the city of Babylon, which was located in what is now present-day Iraq. There, the Jewish people remained for 70 years until Persia sacked Babylon and allowed the Israelites to return 
to their ancestral home. When Israel returned to Jerusalem, they found the city totally demolished, along with the temple itself. The feeling, of course, was one of utter despair. Many of the prophets in the Old Testament speak of this despair, and the people struggle to reclaim their national identity, their struggle to reclaim their religious identity, and their struggle to rebuild the city and the temple. But they did, and part of what inspired them to do that was this idea of the suffering servant of the Lord, who supposedly embodied all the suffering and the affliction of the people, essentially draining them up, and thereby liberating them and empowering them to rebuild and, and move on. Psalm 22 plays on this suffering servant trope, but perhaps the most prominent example of it is found in the book of Isaiah, which is in large part about the Babylonian exile and the people's return, particularly Isaiah 53, which, which Matthew and Mark both draw upon. Let's read a little bit of Isaiah 53 now and listen. Listen for correlations to the Gospels. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom others hide their face, he was despised and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away. For he was cut off from the land of the living stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. End quote. Jewish tradition has always held that Isaiah is either speaking of himself here or the entire nation of Israel, the latter being more likely than the former. In other words, I think, and Jewish tradition holds, that Isaiah is speaking of Israel in general here. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, uh, I think, should be understood as Israel itself. The exiled Israelites returning to Israel from Babylon believed that they were bearing the sins of their ancestors and suffering on their behalf. The Israelites always interpreted being defeated in battle or being oppressed by foreign adversaries as, as the just punishment of the Lord upon them for their sins as a nation, like the sins of idolatry, you know, worshiping foreign idols, practicing injustice in the land, not keeping the covenant, etc. The Babylonian exile was no exception to this. And yet the exile lasted for 70 years. So those who returned to Israel, those who returned to Jerusalem, were in fact the children or the, or the grandchildren of those who were deported. So they believed they were suffering the sins, suffering for the sins of their ancestors. They believed they were suffering, they were the suffering servant. And because so, they believed that God would honor their suffering and forgive their nation and heal their land and establish them once again. This is who the psalmist and Isaiah, I think, had in mind. I think when they wrote these, I think when they wrote these passages, they were thinking of the nation itself returning from, from Babylon. You know, they didn't think, in other words, they were prophesying of Jesus. And yet, 
Jesus's Jewish followers, right? It was Jesus's Jewish followers that saw him as part of this tradition of the suffering servant, and rightfully so. By placing Jesus within the context of Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and this entire suffering servant motif, by doing so, they were saying that Jesus's sufferings and martyrdom represented in a way the sufferings and martyrdom of the entire nation under the Roman occupation. And, the, and their sufferings under a corrupt religious institution that exploited them and oppressed them in the name of God. Jesus became a symbol of God's solidarity with them in all of that suffering. He embodied the sufferings of the people. Therefore, the correlation between him and the suffering servant in their scriptures was, was I think, impossible for them not to see. The suffering servant was a heroic like figure that liberated God's people from oppression and gave them a future. Jesus embodied this, not just in his sufferings, uh, not just in his suffering and death, but in his critique of the religious authorities, his, his radical love for the outcast, his, his solidarity with the poor and the powerless, and his unflinching, unflinching devotion to justice. All this is to say that the passion narrative functions as a liturgical meditation on, on all of this, which is to say that it's a liturgical meditation on what God's love looks like lived out in a human being. It's a liturgical meditation on the divine attributes of self-sacrifice, compassion, unconditional love, and courage, courage in the face of great evil. It's a liturgical meditation in God's solidarity with the lynched ones of the world, because Jesus was, in fact, lynched and hung on a tree, we're told. It's a liturgical meditation about God's solidarity with the poor and the powerless, those who are oppressed by the political and religious authorities. It's a liturgical meditation on the humanity of God and the divinity of humanity when we live like Christ. It's a liturgical meditation, I think, on all of that. It's not meant to teach us exactly how Jesus died, but who Jesus was and what it means to be his follower. It's not literal, it's liturgical, in my opinion. It's meant to convey spiritual truths, not historical facts. And there's a big difference between those things. But again, that's, that's my take on it. <laughs> that's how I see it. And I'm curious now to hear from you. How do you, how do you see this today? Uh, do you have any questions about this? What's your take on it? Oh, Nathan, you love it. I thought you might. Nathan's taking, um, tell me again exactly what the courses are you're, you're studying, having to do with ancient myth or current myths or, or both. Okay, no problem. He said, hold on. <laughs> Can you hear me? 
Yeah, man. I had to switch out my earphones because the mic. Oh, no problem. Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. No, it's good. I was just taking notes of like, I'm going to come back to this when I'm working on my dissertation (laughs) because it's like, I was thinking about that just this morning of how much when we loosen our grip on the, on the uh, historicity of the stories and like the insistence that these have to be a certain way, how much more powerful everything opens up, how much more magical the story is. And I don't mean that in a condescending like Harry Potter way, I just mean more powerful, like, like more enchanting, more like spiritual it becomes. So yeah. I, I love it. I'm sure I'll be hitting you up to talk about this a little bit. Oh, more. cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I, I'm just, I'm curious how this strikes everybody. Um, because I, my hope is that it's lib- it's liberating. I can also be kind of anxiety inducing, um, you know, for those of us coming out of conservative traditions, right. The, the passion narrative isn't, uh, isn't entirely literal or, or, you know, it, it plays on these, on these mythological tropes of the suffering servant and is importing these ideas from Psalm 22 and, in Isaiah 53. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm curious how others see that and hear that. Um, yeah. Maybe that's not the right way to take it, but it's, it's a well, way. It's, it's interesting because and I'll, and I'll, we can, is that the historical Christ and the mythical Christ are not incompatible. They're right. not, it's not one or the other. They're actually extremely compatible. They're just different ways of framing the events that took place or looking at the events that took place which have different meanings and, and, and very different meanings for what, um, how we relate to it. So I think it's pretty, it's a, it's a great thought to have and to muse on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm getting, a, maybe I didn't mention this. I'm getting a lot of this from the late Bishop John Spong, John Shelby Spong, who died recently. And then I, I got into his work and I found this, I had never heard about this eight, this, eight three-hour segment of the passion narrative found in Matthew and Mark. I had never heard that before, um, but it's, it's actually really broken up that way. Um, uh, almost, almost as perfectly clear as I put it. In fact, in, in Mark and Matthew, if you go to the actual crucifixion, he's crucified at nine, darkness at 12, dead at three, and, you know, buried by six. I mean, it's incredible how it's actually like broken up that clearly in the, in the narrative. Um, and again, for me, I think it speaks of, of the liturgical nature of it um, and even how the original audience and the authors of the Gospels arranged it that way or knew that they weren't, you know, trying to forensically recount the exact ways in which Jesus, I just don't think that they worried about these things like we moderns do. But I, I find that incredibly liberating and, and interesting. Um, but then again, I'm a, I'm a complete heretic and liberal, so... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, thank you, Nathan. Um, other other thoughts or reflections on this today, or, or questions about the suffering servant motif coming out of coming out of the Old Testament. I think that's another interesting perspective. Well, Aaron, if I could, um, I'm I'm really in this uh, the newness of like realizing, which has sort of been my journey this whole time, getting out of conservative yeah. beliefs and evangelicals and stuff, but. Like, it, it's interesting that you say not literal because that is such a strong point in the conservative way that if you, it all, it, again, we're, we're faced with, don't question these things. It, even if it doesn't make sense, that's not the point. You're not supposed to understand certain things here. And so it's interesting to hear 
you say that it's not literal and have someone else come and say, when it's not literal, it sort of becomes magical and more powerful and this and that. And I think that some conservatives would say, well, you know, if, if we're not believing in the exact words of, of the Bible, then that's when the devil can see, seep in and take over your thoughts and having your own thoughts sort of means that you've now been taken over by the other side. If you don't stay within the lines of confinement that we sort of set up that you don't understand, now you've got evil coming in. And I just, I'm sort of on this because I messaged you about the whole Satan situation. I'm like, you know, all all the areas where they say that if you don't stay within the confines, then you're all of a sudden allowing space that needs to be filled. And typically it's filled by evil. So, yeah. Yeah. And that is a Pentecostal idea, right? Um, this idea that if you leave yourself open, you will become demonically possessed, right? If, if you, it, yeah, which is uh, an interesting idea that a lot of other Christians, even conservative Christians from other traditions are like, wait a minute, what? Yeah. That's a very Pentecostal idea. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, even in church history, what it meant to read the text literally has changed. In other words, in a way, we are reading the text literally because we are, we are still um, paying attention to the literal spiritual meaning of the text. Does that make sense? The literal spiritual meaning of the passion narrative is that this is what God's love looks like lived out in a human being. So in a way, you know, it, the, the symbolic reading of it this is not a way of stripping the literal meaning out of it. It's, it's simply actually a more traditional literal reading of it. Um, there's good evidence actually throughout church history that the way the church understood a literal reading wasn't, you know, this scientific, you know, forensic historical approach, you know, trying to get behind the text and and trying to discover what actually took place and, you know, or believing that the text is giving us like a newspaper article, an exact bullet point, you know, outline of exactly how history unfolded. But the literal reading, even for most of church history, was about the literal spiritual meaning of the text. And we've lost that after the Enlightenment because the church became obsessed with, you know, authority and, and wow. making sure that, that the Bible was still, you know, the, a greater authority than science, right? And so we needed to make the Bible scientific. <laughs> uh, when for most of church history, that wasn't a struggle. And uh, there's lots of evidence that the original literal meaning had to do with the literal spiritual meaning, not history and science. Does that make sense? Which makes more sense. Oh, yeah. To most people, but because that's the authority and the power and control came in, they had to keep you from straying. And so yeah. therefore, when you when you have your own thoughts, you tend to stray. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and Desiree's echoing that, right? The church became obsessed and concerned with yeah. authority. Yeah, Be- and it still is because it feels threatened by the modern world, right? Yep. And, and Aaron, just to, to echo your point, I also find it helpful to realize that the conversation of do you read the Bible literally never came up. Like that wasn't a question that was asked. Like that idea of literal reading wasn't a, a point of contention in church history. And the idea of biblical inerrancy is 100 years old, you know, yeah. in the United States that like, this is a super new way of understanding the Bible, especially the way we do it here in the evangelical church in the United States. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so really, I want to be clear, like even what I'm talking about and what, what we're describing, the way that this is not really a liberal reading. It is compared to in, in today's context, but this is not the way we're reading it is not really this newfangled progressive liberal reading, but it's actually true to the original intent of the authors. I, I think now, of course, everybody says that, but I, I think there's good ground for that. <laughs> uh, I just reject this idea that this is a liberal reading. It's not really. It's it is a it is a literal reading of you know getting back to the original intent of the authors and and what the text is meant to trying to communicate to us. I think, um, yeah. I would say I think there there's a a big difference though in the way that like the gospel writers, for instance used and referenced to those texts, I don't think they were even concerned with the original tent of that author. I think yeah. they were looking at the tradition and how to fold something in. So there's even this very modern way that we do, uh, you know, biblical exegesis to try and get to the original meaning that if you look at the way the use of scripture evolves in the Bible, they don't even care. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not the primary concern because the worldview is just totally different about like that whole conversation about, is this literally what was meant is less important than what is God doing with this now? But I mean, even this conversation is that I, like even bringing that up in a point is to like project something onto the writers of the Bible that they would have never even been thinking about because their view of the world was so different than ours. Yeah, and there's also, yeah, it's a good point. You know, I don't want, you know, and there's also something kind of ironic about the way that Christians often, you know, we, we love to take the Jewish, uh, even conservative Christians love to take the Jewish consideration into context. How, well, you know, but, but then they throw it out when, you know, it becomes obvious that the way that a Jew would actually, or Jews then and now both read the text in a non-hyper-literal or a non-inerrant uh, it's not to say that Jewish people read their Bible, you know, relativistically, but they are a lot more elastic. Their, their view of it is a lot more elastic than ours. And that's often ironically not taken into consideration by evangelicals, that it's always, the text has always been more living and, and elastic for Jews than it has been for Christians, especially post-Enlightenment, meaning post-17th century, uh, you know, European. This is a very Eurocentric thing right um so yeah that's that's interesting if we if I, I think i think honestly what we're talking about is trying to read the text read read the passion narrative from a more jewish perspective not necessarily from a more euro eurocentric liberal perspective you know post enlightenment but more just from a jewish perspective which of course today among evangelicals is a liberal reading but you, you get what i'm saying yeah it's, that's good stuff other thoughts Real quick, um, it reminds me of that. There's a, I think it was a TED talk where some guy tried to live by the word of the Bible literally. Oh, yeah. And I just thought that was very interesting because I'd never thought, like, you know, again, we're taught not to have our own thoughts. So I was just like, oh, it's literal and you have to believe every word of it or else you aren't believing the word of God because it, the first sentence says, this is the word of God if you don't believe it. But I mean, it's a good point that like, how are we supposed, if it's supposed to be a living word, right? A word that is, that should apply to every era of humanity, if this is what we're supposed to be doing, it's really hard to live by the literal words 
from 2000 years ago. Like yeah. how, how do we make that real and tangible and a way that we can actually do that today when all these things were written so long ago? Are you familiar with Rachel Hald Evans, the late Rachel Hald Evans? I just, Max just wrote that. And oh, I, did, did I he? I, yeah. <laughs> I am okay. not, but I will now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm catching up with what was written in the chat. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. That's where I was going to go with it. Yeah. Rachel Hald Evans wrote a book called A Year of Biblical Womanhood where basically she follow, tried to follow what the Bible said about being a woman mm. uh, to the T and that's actually the book that put her on the map. I mean, her blog did as well. And her critique of Mars Hill, sorry, quick segment. That was really, it was her critique of Mars Hill that also really brought her to prominence. But anyway, uh, it was also that book, A Year of Biblical Womanhood. Check it out, Emily. Yeah, and that, yeah if you're interested. Yeah. Totally. She was, she's greatly missed. Um, AJ Jacobs too. Okay, cool. Not sure who that is. I think he did it right before before Rachel. Even he did a, a year living biblically. Oh, really? Same kind of principle. He's uh, he, he comes from Jewish lineage and tried to actually go through like what what would it actually be like to follow um, you know a lot of these codes and laws. Um, so a similar approach. It's also very funny. Um, so it's uh, a, a, he's a great writer too. But yeah, I think he did it before Rachel did. Wow. That's it. So maybe Rachel was inspired by him. Right. It's interesting. Yeah. Desiree, were you going to say something? I was going to say, I think he even like enrolled in like Liberty University. I think and, right. and so like he literally like left Brown and went to like enroll. Like he really went all in. Um, and the book is, it's funny, but it's also like really good. Yeah. Interesting. I have never heard of this. Agreed. Recommend. Yes. Good stuff. Other thoughts today on how we read the text? All right. Well, everybody, thanks for a great conversation. And um, I'm just reading some of this and good stuff. Thanks. Thanks for being here um, as always. And uh, yeah, we are officially dismissed. If you want to hang out and chat, please do so. But otherwise, go in peace, friends and family. Mm -hmm.